Welcome, I'm Melissa Durda, and this is Synergo's Cultivate the Soul podcast. Stories of purpose-driven philanthropy from around the world. Over this series, we explore together the intersection of contemplative practices, spirituality, philanthropy, and social impact. Join us as we dive into the personal journey of each guest and what they have discovered about the role of inner work on one's capacity to change the world. To learn more about each of our guests and view the full episode list, please visit synergos.org podcast. Hi, this is David Less. I'm the chairman of the board of the Abrahamic Reunion, and I cultivate my soul by envisioning peace and harmony and especially beauty. And when I'm really losing everything, I step into nature and it all comes back. Today, we are joined by David Less, chairman of the board of the Abrahamic Reunion. David is a founding member of the Abrahamic Reunion, a bottom-up grassroots organization designed to overcome the problem of segregation and separation in Israel and Palestine by bringing together groups of people from the four major religions to spend time together, work together, study together, and to create an atmosphere of trust and understanding. David has been teaching meditation and inner practices for 55 years. He is the spiritual director and founder of Rising Tide International, a universal spiritual center in Sarasota, Florida. David's full bio is available on our podcast website. So David, thanks so much for joining us for the podcast today. We're thrilled to have you here. Thank you. And it's my pleasure. So I'd like to get us started by asking you to share a memory or a story from your life that was instrumental in shaping your view on what matters. Well, because of the situation right now in the Holy Land, the story that comes to mind is an event that took place about 20 years ago. And I was walking with my son in Jerusalem, and maybe 200 meters away, there was an explosion and a bus was blown up, and many people were killed and more injured. And I stopped in my tracks, and I tried to deny it. I tried to say, oh, maybe that wasn't. And my son looked at me and he said, it was, that was a bomb. And I felt the souls receding, disappearing from the planet. I didn't feel individual souls. I just felt this energy of mass violent death. And it was a life-changing event. I was in Jerusalem doing peace work. But this brought it home to a certain depth of my being that has been with me ever since. So that was a dramatic life-changing event. And if you don't mind, I had four other events that changed my life. I was present at the birth of all four of my kids who are now well into adulthood. And each time that I saw my son or daughter come out, and take that first breath and feel the energy when the cord was cut. Those events also shaped my life deeply and really brought home the obvious, which is my life might be from my birth to my death, but there is continuity that goes on. So what I do with my life is very relevant and important to other generations. And this is true of every human being. We're part of a delightful chain. What would you say is your purpose? 
Well, my purpose, frankly, is to realize to the fullness of my capability the infinite one being of whom we are all part, and to try and use my physical senses while on earth and my intelligence and my heart to absorb as much positive experiences as I can. And I know that every human being has the possibility of contributing to the collective consciousness and making it more of a cooperative consciousness. And so I try and use my time, not all of it, because I still goof around, which I'm quite happy about, but I try and use all my time to really be a post of listening to others, hearing people's suffering and their joys, and trying to stay focused in the midst of chaos, and sometimes realizing it's self-created chaos, and I need to step back and bring balance and compassion into my life and the life of others as best I can. If I can add one more thing, I also realized I'm here to be a friend to people, and I really try and practice that. Thank you for sharing that. Was there a particular moment or an inspiration in your life that helped you come to understand your purpose? Yeah, there was a number of moments, but one that comes to me right now, I was probably 19 or 20. I was in the middle of law school, and I had been experimenting with psychedelics and different forms of consciousness altering what's now called plant medicine. And I was with a friend of mine someone who I've known since I was four years old. And now at 79, we're still best friends. And we decided, you know, we've gotten really out there in these trips and so on. Let's just take one trip and put in everything we have. I won't go into details, but we combined a lot of consciousness-altering substances, and it worked. We both had an incredible long moments. It lasted all night in silence, by the way. I hope this doesn't make people uncomfortable, but in the silence, our communication was telepathic. We could really hear each other and we tested it. We would go to opposite ends of the house and write down things and see if we were really connected. And this went on and both of us began to experience greater realms of consciousness. And at the end of eight or nine hours, it was over, and we had experienced uniting our consciousness. We still were separate bodies, of course. At the end of that, he and I took whatever was left over of our psychedelics and other stuff and flushed them down the toilet. And we said, well, that was as high as you can go with a substance. Now we want to find out what's beyond that. And in the midst of the silence, I heard a word I never heard before, and that word was Sufi. I didn't know what it was, and I went to, we didn't have Google in those days, so I went to a dictionary, and it said Muslim mystics. And I said, well, I'm not a Muslim, and I'm not a mystic, so I don't know what this is. And then through that experience, I did find people of the Sufi path and many other paths, because Sufism is really universal. And I went around the world finding people of who had this experience, the inner experiences, and I learned from whomever I could. 
So tell me a little bit more about how your journey continued. So in the introduction, I'm talking about the work you're doing with the Abrahamic Reunion. Tell us a little more about what next and how did that get you to this work that you're doing today? Because of my own meditations and inner experiences, I recognize that human beings and nature are much more connected than we realize. And many of us are projecting different thoughts and feelings and not realizing that we are not just the self-contained entity that we believe we are, but that we are affecting each other by our feelings and our thoughts. And so I was in the Holy Land about 25 years ago. I first went there in 1971, but this was 25 years ago, and I was with a number of friends and students, and we realized that there was a lacking that even good people, wonderful people, were still very much isolated in their own world, their own way, their own belief. And because of not just my experiences, but anyone who goes in depth to the inner way knows we're connected, I thought I could do a service if I can at least bring peacemakers together of the different faiths. Israel is very segregated, and so is Palestine. And, you know, there's walls of separation, and there's such projection about the, quote, other. And it really pained me. It really hurt my heart and soul deeply. So I started to just bring people together. And people who could never come into Israel, Palestinians, we helped them get permits for a day, and they could come in. We would have meals together. We'd walk on the beach together. We'd share the commonality of our scriptures together, the Torah, the gospel, and the Quran. We would say, hey, most of these teachings are very similar, if not the same. And yet we're fighting over little bits of differences. So I use the opportunity to bring people together. And out of that, organically, a number of people stepped forward. And the Abrahamic Reunion was born almost 25 years ago. And we've been bringing people together ever since and acting as a living example. And what I learned in the culture in North America and in Europe, it's not so uncommon to have diversity of religion, having people friends of other religions, quite common. But in the Holy Land, it wasn't that way. For cultural reasons and maybe for political reasons, I don't know. But when we did bring people together, real changes occurred, and friendships were made, and stereotypes were dropped, and hope was born again. Can you tell us maybe an example of these changes? I think it's safe to say to whoever's listening to this podcast, I purposely did not want to have the questions in advance. I appreciate the spontaneity of the moment and seeing what comes up. And my partner in the Abrahamic reunion is a wonderful man named Hassan Manasra. And he was and is instrumental in pulling these events together. I want to repeat, the Abrahamic reunion is not political, and that gave us great protection. Well, there is a city in Israel called Sfat, and Sfat is a very holy place. It's where the early rabbis did their retreats and had their realization. It's a special place, and it's special to Jews, and it's special to Muslims and Christians alike. There was, and I'm not going to say a name, but there was a very 
narrow Orthodox Jewish rabbi, obviously Jewish if he's a rabbi, and he put out the call. He was the chief rabbi in Svat, and he said, do not rent to any Muslims. Don't rent apartments. Don't rent stores. If you do, it's terrible and the equivalent of excommunication. And he was as hard line as you can get. One day, we had an event in a city called Akko, where the Crusaders mostly were. And it was an event of religious leaders coming together to talk to each other. And there were probably about 100 other people who just came to be part of it. Well, the day before the event, Ghassan called up this rabbi, who he didn't know. And the rabbi said, hello. And Ghassan said, hello, this is Ghassan Manasra. We're having an event tomorrow in Akko, bringing all the religions together, and we would like you to come. And then Ghassan hung up the phone. And he told some of us there, especially some of the Orthodox Jews, and they said, he'll never come. Sure enough, the next day, this rabbi shows up with four bodyguards, all armed with guns. And we stood at the door and said to the rabbi, you come in, they can't come in. And he came in, and in three hours, he was totally transformed, really. It's like his heart opened and created a memory in him that he had forgotten. Well, I can tell you that this rabbi, to this day, is one of our great supporters. So how did it happen? Well, I really believe that there is consciousness that connects us, and I believe he felt something in Gassan's voice, and something from his own being spoke to him, and without him even knowing how or why, suddenly the next day there he was. So it can work. Did you ever find out from him what happened or what he experienced when he did come to your gathering? <laughs> you might not like my answer, but what I've learned is often it's wiser not to ask. So I never asked, and I was more interested and excited about the result. This is one story. I can tell you story after story. Every year during December in Israel, we have a summit, and we bring together women's leaders, student leaders, and religious leaders. And we spend the day together. It's about a couple of hundred people. So a few years ago, I went to the event, and I walked into the auditorium, and there were these beautiful young kids with T-shirts on saying Abrahamic reunion, peace is possible. And they were very gentle, and they would walk people to their seats and give them a program and so on. And after the event was over, I said to Abed, our Israeli coordinator, who was, I think at the time, he was probably 27 or 28, he's young. And I said, who were those beautiful young people that ushered the event? And he said, those people, there were eight of them, were hardliners from both sides. And when I say hardliners, I'm being polite. And I spoke to them after that. I spoke to them recently, too. They realized somehow that their life was going to have no meaning if they continued in their way. And I said, isn't it dangerous for them? And he said, yeah, it's dangerous if people knew. But they just withdrew and found a way to live their life safely. And they've continued to do so. And we affect more and more young people because there's nobody clearly representing the middle ground, clearly representing balance. And also, 
listening compassionately to the pain on all sides. So we've taken that role because it just wasn't being fulfilled. And so we get many interesting people working with us. Right now, we have some ex-officers from the Israeli army, and they've been our great proponents. They really spread the word. So would you say this human connection that you're able to create an environment for, one of compassion, one of listening to the other, those are the key elements of the work that you're doing, or is there more? Well, there is more. One thing that we've come to realize is it is imperative to change the narrative. The narrative is the things people have believed in for so long and teach their children. And so what we are presenting is an alternate narrative. It doesn't have to be this way. And I say this to people, they always say, oh, it's been this way for thousands of years. It has not been this way. This escalation of violence really, this is not blame, but I believe that this era of such pain began in, with the war in 1967, with the Six-Day War. And there was much more understanding between communities up until then. And we need to remember that roughly 20% of the state of Israel are Arabs. It's not like a few, but that's a fifth of the population. And maybe it's more for all I know. And so it is imperative to stop going back to the catastrophe, which is what the Arabs call when the Jews threw them out after the UN resolution. I think it was 700,000 were displaced. And the Arabs have to give up the narrative well, we're going to go back in and we'll get our house back. And those days are finished. It's not going to happen. But what we can offer instead is a place and a home for understanding, for neighborliness, for love. And also, we're not trying to take anybody's culture away. We don't want to change the culture, just the narrative. And there's a big difference. So we appreciate all cultures. At the same time, you know, we all of our events are always kosher so that both Muslims and Jews can eat in peace. And as an unwritten rule, because everything is kosher, we ask everybody to eat together and mix. Don't eat just with your community. Sharing a meal together and then sharing a prayer together and then maybe even walking together, moving together, seems to create a very deep and profound change. And more so than a lot of speeches and a lot of lectures. There are groups, other groups, that are doing wonderful things with young people, bringing sports teams together, orchestras together, you know, as Berenbaum did. It's beautiful. But what we do is, there was a, I forget the year it was written, a PhD thesis on the contact hypotheses. And it basically said, bring people together. Something will happen. Don't decide in advance what will happen. Something will happen. People ask me, is it always good? And I say, no, we've had plenty of failures. I've had people screaming at me and blaming me. Gassan has had death threat after death threat on, from all sides, by the way. He's a universal target. By the same token, we've had great successes. And the greatest successes are not phenomenal stories. They're just simple events that someone took something beautiful from. The Middle East is a very oral culture. And so if you can affect one person, that person will tell the story to a hundred people. 
And that's what we've done. That's beautiful. I like the power of the storytelling for the impact to continue to resonate even after the times you're getting the, the groups and the people together. The series is also called Love in Action. So I also want to ask you, what is your view on the role that love plays in creating change? Well, I'll happily share with you my view. I have had an unusual background. This is prelude to the view. So I was born and raised Jewish, and I'm still a Jew. At the same time, because of Sufism, I've learned a great deal about Muslim, about Islam, I should say. And in a sense, I'm now a Jewish Muslim. At the same time, I've had actual direct experiences of Jesus. So I'm now a Jewish Muslim Christian, and it goes on. I, I'm a mishmash of all these different ways, and I find the thread that unites. And what is the thread? Well, the thread is very simple. It is love. And we read in every scripture that God is love. And so we think, well, God is love, so I should love God. And one of the commandments is that. But that's just the first stage. Once I recognized that God is in the entirety love, that it's not parceled out, it's universal. Then once I realized that, then it became my personal responsibility to love everyone. And I'll tell you a story. It's a very difficult story, but I'll tell it to you. I had a Sufi teacher many years ago. I was very young, and he was Norwegian and had spent World War II behind the lines, acting as both a spy and in the resistance. And he had seen terrible things, really terrible things. And one day we were speaking about love. And he said, well, in the essence of every human being, there's love and there's goodness. It's there. And he said, because that's in essence what God is. And the other is as how far we've traveled from our natural self. And he said, but you must remember, it's there in every human being. And I said to him, I was young and naive, and I said, well, what about Hitler? And he looked at me and he said, oh, it's in Hitler also. It took me 10 years to absorb that lesson. I really resisted. But after 10 years, it gave me great freedom to be able to love even these monstrous souls who do horrendous, cause huge, vast amounts of pain and suffering millions of lives lost. And somehow we need to find that place of love in every human being because it's in every human being. So with all the work that you've done and your life experience, how do you imagine the future and how can we get there and what role does love play? Well, I imagine the future, we will have serious difficulty because of our not particularly aggressive approach to climate change. And when the situation is dire, maybe that will cause greater unity among human beings. I hope it doesn't come to that. I hope we can experience a recognition of the other without having such a drastic cataclysm. But in addition to that, as I see the future, I have a lot of faith in young people. They are not following in the mold of their parents and grandparents. They're not making the materiality of life the key point, get more and more and more. And I know many people say, oh, the young generation is lazy. They're not lazy. They're just seeking balance. 
They don't want to have a life that devotes all of its time and energy to making money. And they want to do more about self-discovery. So I feel like that is a great gift that will move us in the right direction. So I have faith and I have hope and I have joy. I always feel your joy when I speak with you. (laughs) Thank you. That makes me joyous. (laughs) (laughs) So how can people learn more about your work or connect to you or to Abrahamic Reunion? If they want to connect to the Abrahamic Reunion, it's very easy. It's online, abrahamicreunion.org. And if they want to connect with me, they can go to, I think I have a site, davidless.com. I never go there, but they can communicate to me through that, or they can communicate through the Abrahamic Reunion. And I'm always happy to respond if I can. And if they want to help us, we are in dire need of financial support. I always think it's so odd. What we're doing is effective. And I keep thinking, well, why aren't more people helping us? We do all this on a very, very limited budget. And the answer I come up with is because we're not good at raising money. So I accept that. We're really not that well-versed yet. We've only been doing it a quarter of a century. But if you want to help us in that area, of course, we'd be most appreciative. So can I ask a question? Sure. What do you think the future will be, Melissa? How old are your children? So I have a 17-year-old daughter and a 14-year-old son. And I also share your view on hope for the future. Not only through my children, but maybe I've mentioned that I, through Synergos, also starting some retreats for the younger generation. And I find them so inspiring and so creative in solutions that they're already coming up with for some of these problems we're facing. So both in the younger generation, like my children, and also those in their 20s and 30s, it's truly remarkable. And we need to listen as older generations to their views, their ideas, and how they see the world. Beautiful. Yeah, really, we do need to listen. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story and the work that you're doing. You're welcome. Thank you for the holy work that you do. Thank you. What I like about this conversation with David is learning about how, through the Abrahamic reunion, they are working to shift consciousness by bringing people together to share a walk or a meal so they can change the narrative from separation to unity. 